This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. This week, I speak with Janine Roth, author of the bestseller, Feeding the Hungry Heart, and the Sounds True audio learning course, When Food is Food and Love is Love. We discuss the spiritual lessons, which resulted from Janine's financial losses with disgraced investment advisor Bernie Madoff, and how this experience caused her to re-examine many of her long-held beliefs about money, loss, and the preciousness of this moment. So thanks, Janine, for taking the time to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. I'm glad to. I wanted to talk with you because a friend of mine mentioned to me at the end of January that he had gotten a hold of a blog entry on the Huffington Post in which you talked about how you had been part of the Madoff Ponzi scheme and lost 30 years of savings. And of course, as soon as I heard this, my heart, first of all, went out to you as a sounds true author and someone I've known over the years. And then secondly, I thought, well, wh- how is this uh, turning out for Janine in terms of her inner process? And what kind of sense is she making out of this? And, and you have such a gift at, for making wisdom out of, what shall we say, um, garbage that I thought, well, tell me, Janine, talk to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well, I, I, you know, I can start talking, and if I talk too generally, then um, feel free to ask me any specific questions. In fact, specific questions really do help. Um, I, just a little background, uh, because people, a lot of people have some misconceptions about Madoff. Uh, my husband and I... Uh, were invited to invest actually with a good friend of ours whose father was a good friend of Bernie Madoff's, and they had been with him and investing with him for 45 years um, and, of course, had done quite well during that time. And this friend took pity on Matt and me when uh, another friend of ours 10 years ago a financial advisor of ours had embezzled quite a lot of our money. And so our friend Richard said, uh, come with me. You can invest anywhere from $500 to hundreds of thousands of dollars. doesn't matter. Uh, but this is something that's safe. And so we were very, very, very grateful to do that. And never for a second did I think, did I imagine in my imaginings of various catastrophes that made up was a fraud. Mm -hmm. So when I did find out, I went into uh, shock, terror, because we had been using our account with Madoff as sort of a bank. Yeah. Uh, You know, whenever we made money, we put it into our Madoff account, and we kept what we could to pay our expenses, but it was a feeling of, oh, we found something safe, we found something reliable. It's not making the kind of money that other people were making during the high times, but it's not losing money during the hard times. So um, in that second of finding out that everything we thought we had, we didn't have, and everything we knew we had was completely lost, there was a sense of oh um of of dying actually mm-hmm. of of having somebody throw a bomb into my chest and and somehow finding myself still alive which i think i wrote about mm-hmm. and then there was the process of coming to terms with it uh, my husband was in antarctica he was on vacation i couldn't well, hold on a second. What was your husband doing by himself vacationing in Antarctica? That's a little strange. 
He actually was with four good friends okay. on a um, a wildlife expedition I, that I didn't want to go on. I was um, working on a book, on a book deadline, and I also don't like being cold. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't want to go, but he did, so he went. But when I called him within a few minutes after finding out about Madoff, uh, I had to call him on the satellite phone, and both of us realized within uh, just probably three minutes that we were no longer the kind of people that could talk on satellite phones because it was $15 a minute to talk. And so all I could basically say to him was, Madoff is in handcuffs, it's been a fraud, and we've lost everything. And he said, oh, my God, a couple of times. And we both we both said to each other, somehow we'll get through this and we'll be okay. We didn't know how. Uh, and then we needed to get off the phone. Wow. You know, Janine, I think part of the reason I wanted to talk with you about this is that something like this, I'd say, I'd put in my, like, top biggest fear category. Yeah. I mean, this and like getting pregnant or something. And I've gone to extremes <laughs> so that I, that that second thing won't happen. But this would just be so terrible. I mean, because and I think there's a way and I thought about it, knowing that we were going to be talking today. And I think it's there's a way that I think like there's me and there's infinite, vast, expansive everything. But then there's my savings. And as long as you know, the infinite, vast, everything's fine, as long as I have a certain amount of cash. Right. And otherwise, you know, the infinite, vast, everything, whatever, it's great, but I still, I need this cash in order just to be an okay human. Right. Got it. I understand. I felt exactly the same way. I felt as if, you know, there was my spiritual practice, um, whatever I mean in the moment that I use those words, and then there was the money I'd saved for 30 years. And and all of life could keep going on as long as I had that money, as long as I had at least some of that money, yeah. anyway, um, as some kind of protection, yeah. uh, as some kind of reassurance, as some kind of something that would tell me that I would be okay, that uh, if I got sick or my husband got sick, we could make it through, that we could keep our house, that we'd have enough money for food and shelter and, and, and everything else. And suddenly, all of that was gone. And, you know, in, I, I just actually am, have been writing about that in the last couple of days. Uh, and in those moments after the phone call, I, I called, I called my husband, as I said, I called a friend of mine who unfortunately had just invested in Madoff on my recommendation. And then I called two um, very close friends slash teachers of mine. And both of them said almost exactly the same thing to me. One of them, I didn't know at when I told her, was also invested in Madoff. Mm. And she, and I, so she, this was the first time she was hearing the news that she too had lost everything. And when I told her what I had told Matt, that Madoff was a fraud, she had two responses. The first one was, oh, we've lost everything. And the second response was, but we still have what matters. And... I I thought to myself when she said that this is no time to be spiritual. <laughs> <laughs> this is no time to you know talk in that spiritual psycho babble jargon. You know we've just lost everything. This is a disaster. This is horrible. Um, but she but she said to me, um, and when I said to her, "How can you say that?" She said, "Because it's true." And my 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 second friend that I called also her her name is Catherine, and she also said the same thing to me. She also said to me, um, "It's fine. It's you know, it's horrible. It's awful. He's you know, he was a liar and a cheat, and he should be in jail, but." But what 
what matters most wasn't lost. And I really couldn't see that at that time. Um, but I knew, I knew somewhere in the far reaches of my mind or heart or soul that, that, that was true. And I knew that everything that I had been doing, thinking, spending my time on had come down in some way to that moment, that that was where the rubber meets the road. That actually is where what we call spirituality actually becomes the life you're living. It's not just about sitting on a cushion, and it's not just about thoughts, and it's not just about going to retreats and teachings. But I couldn't really see that at that time. So what I did instead, besides crying, which I did a lot of, I started memorizing a poem that I uh, had read just that morning, which is a poem by Naomi Shihab Nye called Kindness. And it's about losing things. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go. And then there are a few other lines before the poem goes on to talk about how you must see yourself like the Indian in a white poncho who lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. And I started understanding in those few weeks, and I don't want to make this sound easy or simple or tra-la-la-la because there were nights upon nights of waking up in terror of, oh my God, what are we going to do? What am I going to do? Where are we going to live? Uh, How are we going to live? There was the horrible recriminations of um, not diversifying. Slowly over the 10 years we'd been investing in Madoff, we had put more and more of our savings in Madoff. There was the, how could I have been so stupid? How could I have been so selfish? How could I have been so greedy? What's wrong with me? How come we didn't pay off our house? What do I actually value? I mean, there was a whole host of those recriminations, and actually some of those recriminations have led to me uh, deeply questioning what I actually value you know, that that old thing about, you know, putting your money where your mouth is, Mm -hmm. putting my money into the things that I value most, that has has brought up that whole issue of what do I actually value, and in fact, what is money for? Mm -hmm. Uh, Which I had never actually asked myself. Mm -hmm. I just had always thought, you know, I need to, I need to make money, and I need to save money. And uh, I need to buy a house, and I need to mortgage that house. And I need to have more and more money, and I do need to give chunks of my money away, which I was doing, but I still need to have more than I give away and save more and just keep saving and saving, and it's kind of about me and my husband and my family and and. And the illusion which I started seeing as I, as I began memorizing and living with that poem day after day, that I thought I could be different than, and I thought I could be separate from the Indian in the white poncho. I thought I could be separate from the people who were losing 10, 20, 30, 40% of their money, who had lost their jobs. Some way that I could protect myself some way that I could be separate from the soup of chaos or of what everybody else was going through. Some Mm -hmm. way I was special. Mm -hmm. Some way I was different. Some way I was going to be the one still standing when everybody else had fallen. And I was suddenly one of the fallen ones. And uh, it was humiliating. Mm-hmm. It was humiliating, and 
I was ashamed, deeply mm-hmm. ashamed. But I also knew, I think partly because I had people around me, like my friend and teacher Jean, like Catherine, like my very good friends, all of whom had lost all their money. Because Richard, in the generosity of his being, had had offered all of us, basically the, the, the community that I knew and was part of, this opportunity to be in Madoff. And because he had been in it for 35 years before he opened it up to us and because it had done so consistently well for 35 years, um, we all felt like it was, it was a, 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 a miraculous gift that this man, our friend Richard, was offering to us, uh, which meant that when Madoff was declared and declared himself a fraud, everyone I was close to lost everything they had. Hmm. So it wasn't just me. It was also my closest friends. And I saw in the weeks after that loss, first of all, how important contact was mm-hmm. and community. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it, it was crucial. You huddled together. We huddled together. We met that first night, we found out, we, you know, within a couple of hours. One of the first things I had to do was teach a class uh, on the phone. And after I got done with that, and that was really a good thing because it forced me to be present and to get out of the story that was just raging in my mind mm-hmm. about what was going to happen to me um, and just be present with myself uh, in my body and also with the people on the call. That, w- that, was, that was great to do that. I didn't mention Madoff. Um, but I did read that poem, Kindness. And then then I got in my car and I went to meet with my friends. And we talked to each other often during those first couple of weeks. We met a couple of times. I never, not for a moment, felt like I thought I would feel when the catastrophe happened. I think that's one thing I've learned, that I've spent my life preparing for the imminent catastrophe. I spent my life storing up money for when the catastrophe happens. What I didn't realize was that the catastrophe was going to be about losing all that I had stored. Mm -hmm. Now, you use this term a couple times, and I think it's interesting, the word protection, the idea that our money, our savings can be some kind of protection for us. And what I'm curious about is, what does it feel like to be living, quote-unquote, without protection? Um, I know this is going to sound very hard to believe, but I am speaking the truth when I say that it. I feel like I have more now than I did when I had my money. And by that, and I'll try to unpack that because it's been difficult even for me to understand. I think one thing is, I think it's the Dylan line, when you don't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. I'm Mm -hmm. not sure if that's Dylan or not. Sounds like it could be. But there was something about losing it all and no longer being frightened of losing it that was, um, I don't want to say a relief, because it wasn't a relief. It just was the way it was. I had all of this money in my mind. And, and, and yes, some of it was actually uh, checks that had come through my hands and that I had then put in my Madoff account. But, of course, what I thought I had as a result of having those original checks, it turns out I didn't really have because Madoff's returns were all made up anyway. Um, so I, the, I had the thought 
what I basically had was the thought of having that money. Mm-hmm. And then I lost the thought of having that money. Now, of course, I lost more than the thought of the money because at any time during the years that I was invested in Madoff, I could have um, redeemed all of that money or some of that money. And so, and then that I would have actually had that money to spend. So it gets a little complicated there. Uh, the idea of what I had, what I thought I had, mm-hmm. and the idea of having money. When I no longer had the money that I thought I had, then there was, <sighs> there was a, a necessity of having to look at what I had left, what I actually did have that I could count on having that was in front of me. And this is where it starts. This is where I start sounding like Jean or sounding like Catherine. It's okay to say, it's okay, it's okay. You, you, I, I support you, Janine, in, <laughs> you know, the, the GOMs, the gifts of Madoff. Cause there's, right. there's clearly That's what I wrote about in the article. Exactly, because there's clearly the OMGs, too, the Oh My Gods. Yeah, Do you know thank what I mean? so you. We have the OMGs, but now these are the GOMs, and that's fine. I saw that I could, um, well, first of all, I saw that I still had a body that could breathe and could talk and walk and see and feel. I saw that much. I saw that I had been taking that for granted. No matter how many meditation retreats I've ever done, no matter how many times I've brought my attention back to my body, there was something astonishing about seeing that I still had the resource of a life and of having a body. The year before, in September of last year, I had gone through um, an anaphylactic shock experience in, uh, in the CAT scan room where I almost died. I started leaving my body. Wow. And the, um, the doctor and then the paramedics had to bring me back through extreme measures. But in the moments that I thought I was dying, my husband was standing right there. And I realized he couldn't come with me. I was going alone, and I was losing everything, including my body. And I, I wasn't afraid, but I was just sort of shocked that it was happening so quickly. And right there in the CAT scan room, and not at all as I had planned it, which was... I was going to be old, I was going to be dying with friends and orchids around me and beautiful music playing and somebody reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead and, you know, all kinds of rituals and poetry and all of this. And there I was in a lousy CAT scan room, leaving my body and dying. So when the Madoff loss happened, I thought about that almost immediately within the first couple of days. And I thought about how I was losing my body then. I really was losing everything, including my body. Now, all I had lost was my money. And it was a profound gratitude that even with losing my money, I wasn't also losing my body. So I realized, just as I was reading this kindness poem, just as I um, was memorizing it and saying it to myself again and again, that what kept occurring to me in those days after Madoff was that I had, I had known the possibility of losing everything. I wasn't sure I was going to come back. I didn't know if... if I was going to kind of zonk back into my body or not, but here I was losing my money, but still having everything else. Mm -hmm. So that happened 
previously in 2008? Yeah. Wow. What a year. What a year. And I saw that I still had the capacity to feel. That to, uh, to feel sadness, to feel sorrow, to feel love. One of the lines in the kindness poem is, before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. And I felt like I was getting to know the regions of sorrow. The sorrow not only for myself and having lost what I lost, but the sorrow that so many other people were feeling, had been feeling, not just the people who were losing 10, 20, 30, 40% of their money, but the people who had never had any money, the people who were worried about where their next meal was going to come mm. from, the people in other countries, in third world countries, the women I saw pictures of who were scrambling for grains of rice as it got dropped from planes, who were fighting over grains of rice. I, I, I looked at those pictures, and I, and, I, and I felt the OMG part, oh my God, and I felt a momentary flash of sorrow, and then the kind of um, uh, pride or smugness of, oh, well, that's not me. I'll never be like that. And I started feeling the bareness, the kind of the nakedness of that kind of sorrow of not knowing where your next meal is going to come from. So when I lost what I, what I had, then I started feeling the territory of loss. And I started feeling more connection. The price, of, the price of having so much more than other people had and of feeling like I was always going to have more than enough and I was never going to get into those situations, for me, and I don't think this is true for everybody, but for me, it was the price of, of feeling separate from other people's sorrow. Mm-hmm. And so I, I and and suddenly I was one of them. Mm-hmm. I, I I wasn't I wasn't different then. I was the same as. And that was startling to me. But there was something um, astonishing about it. There was something relieving about it. There was something uh, um, that made me feel so grateful about it. I, 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 um, I, I felt like I was getting to inhabit a, a, a country that I never would have visited on my own, but that was putting me in touch, I think, mostly with places in myself that I had cut myself off from, that I just never had to visit. You know, I, I, in, the, in, in the realm of food, because so much of my work until now has been with compulsion and addiction, specifically with emotional eating, and one of the patterns I talk about with food is storing for the hunger to come. Mm-hmm. How people eat and eat and eat as if they're the, in the next moment there's going to be a famine, a kind of protection, if you will. Yeah, yeah. A protection from feeling any kind of emptiness. Mm-hmm. The emptiness that's associated with hunger. And I saw that I was doing the same thing, though I had worked through my issues with food 30 years before, so that food really is no longer a problem for me. I had transferred so much of what was true for me about food onto money. And so I was storing for the hunger to come, and I was trying to protect myself from, uh, first of all, from catastrophes that in some ways had already happened, 
my my um, teacher Jean had said to me years before, you keep protecting yourself from losses that have already happened. You keep trying to shield yourself from the the catastrophes of your childhood, from what I call the three A's of childhood addiction, abuse, and abandonment, Mm -hmm. and that I was still in the present moment protecting myself from those losses by the way that I acted and felt. And I saw that I was still doing that. But then I also saw that I was protecting myself from imminent catastrophe. You know, the the catastrophes of... um, losing all the money, of being faced with loss, of emptiness, of not knowing what to do, of being like everyone else, of, um, of being at a complete loss, really. So, uh, and I think in the end, I mean, what that got down to as I just kept sitting with it and sitting with it and crying about it and raging about it and writing about it was that I saw that I just felt like there was some way, some illusion that my money could protect me from from just sort of just being human. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the losses of aging. You know, I kept telling myself, oh, well, you know, I don't have kids. So uh, I don't have kids, and, you know, what if Matt dies before me, and, and men usually die before women, and my, what if my friends are, you know, they're dead, or their kids are taking care of them, but nobody's taking care of me, and nobody wants to. Well, at least I'll have enough money to X, Y, and Z. And suddenly, I didn't have that money. I didn't, I didn't have the money that was going to help me get old. And and there was fear about, well, what was I going to do? And, and I still don't know. But I do know that that kind of future catastrophizing um, only revved me up, made me sort of insane, and wasn't particularly helpful because nothing happens the way you think it's going to happen anyway. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Now, uh, you know, I don't mean to imply that saving money is not good. Well, obviously, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, I don't mean to imply that at all, but uh, I think that there are some things that money cannot save anybody from. Yeah. And I think that I was living in the half world of, well, money can save me from that. I mean, I, I'm not sure I really believe that. Even, you know, during those Madoff years, but still there was this feeling that, that in my own case, I could cover my bases. Yeah. Now, a couple other questions about it, Janine, because you, you yeah. mentioned one word, which was the humiliation that you felt. Yeah. And, you know, yet here you are talking publicly and, you know, um, clearly sort of exposing the situation. And what what I've noticed in my own business life is that when things happen that are not successful in the business world, it's actually the humiliation that's more of a problem for me than the actual loss of money when I search my heart. It's the ego, yeah. you know, loss of my sense of, you know, being uh, hot stuff, quote-unquote. That's more of the, the loss. And I think that's part of what you're pointing to here. Yeah. Yeah, I had to come to terms with... Um, my idea of myself, yeah, my my identity, so to speak, as um, a smart, successful person, woman, businesswoman who made good decisions and had money, and and that got stripped away, and so then I had to keep asking myself, well, who am I without that? Who am I? You know, it's that age-old question, but it became real. That's what I mean when I say that all of those spiritual, you know, hoo-hahs suddenly become real when this kind of thing happens, because the question of who am I 
without what I thought I had, without my money, without my idea of myself, without my vision, without my identity, who am I? I really had to to live with that, ask myself that, and 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 answer that pretty much. And it it wasn't my idea of myself. I mean, because that was no longer there. It it pretty much was whatever I was in that moment, whatever I am. I mean, there there was the the ideas just got. I mean, they just got ripped away. So there was no pretending anymore. There was no hiding behind that. It's kind of like, you know, hiding, you know, behind being in my work with with compulsive eaters, hiding behind being thin or hiding even behind being fat, you know, letting, letting the body speak instead of having to break over and over and over again on, on the truth of who you are or what you feel in that moment. I mean, who you are without the identity, without the image. Mm-hmm. So what have you discovered about yourself without that identity of being the successful, smart, savvy, one-step-ahead woman? I, I, it's it's sort of very very simple. It's not any big uh, fancy discovery. It's more just a moment to moment process of being with and telling the truth about whatever I feel, whatever I sense, whatever I see in this moment so if I'm feeling sad or ashamed like I was in those weeks after Madoff I I needed to actually feel that Mm -hmm. not pretend not not up level myself Mm -hmm. not transcend it Mm -hmm. not hide behind uh, an identity of not being that but actually break over it like a wave. Just keep breaking and keep feeling the shame and, and, and keep asking myself about it. Well, what was that about? Why was it important for me to be perceived and to perceive myself as successful? Was there a part of me that, that I felt was ultimately, irrevocably, and unredeemably unsuccessful, and so this image or identity of myself as successful could counteract that? You know, for every part of myself, for every way that I wanted to be perceived, I began asking myself if there was a counterpart, a deeper belief of being the opposite of that. And of course, questioning that and seeing that that wasn't true either. So that was no more true than the fleeting identity of being successful Mm -hmm. according to external terms. Now, you mentioned that before you even got involved in the Madoff uh, world of investing, that you had been, um, that, you know, the, the financial investor that you were working with had embezzled money from your account. So I, I can uh, imagine having thoughts like, what kind of strange cosmic design is there for my life that <laughs> I would go through this more than once? <laughs> That's a very kind way of putting it, Tammy. Yeah. You know, in those first few weeks, the I think in those first few weeks, I had to be so vigilant about not ripping myself apart. I don't know how to say it any other way. But I, I, I would be so many times on the verge of saying, how? Could you be so dumb? 
how could this happen twice? Don't you ever, ever learn? And, of course, I did say that to myself, but there was an understanding because I knew that voice well in many other areas of my life. There was an understanding from having worked with it that um, that voice was not my friend. That voice was going to lead to no good, and that voice would not help me discover and or reveal what was going on that I got involved twice. Now, the first time was a little different. It was, it was a very close friend. It was, a, it was kind of like the relationship that Richard's father had with Madoff, my husband and I had with this man. He had been somebody we had known for almost 15 years and uh, had uh, advised us beautifully. We had been to his wedding. He had been to ours. We'd been there with the birth of his kids. Uh, I mean, he was that close. Mm -hmm. And um, it turned out in the end that he was just as much a fraud as Madoff was. Mm -hmm. I guess the question I'm asking is, in, in my own experience, and I can imagine listeners having this experience, when whatever it is in their life, it might not be around money, it might be around something else, where they get to that moment of, you know, the language I use internally is, you know, gosh, I just feel like slitting my wrists. Not that yeah. I ever would, but it's just this feeling of this is, this is, I feel so terrible about myself. And as you say, it's not a voice that's particularly constructive. So what have you learned about how to work with times when that's the voice you're hearing in your head? Well... Um, the first thing, I, I just want to make a distinction here between uh, blaming yourself and feeling terrible. Okay. Because um, feeling terrible in those weeks after Madoff was what I think a natural thing to feel. Yeah. Um, I don't think there was any way of, of feeling anything but devastated. Blaming myself. Yeah, which is really, which is really what we're talking. What I'm talking about in this example, and yeah, yeah. so raging against myself. Yeah, what I learned in that time, and I learned that also after the death of my father. I mean, I I keep learning that in the most extreme circumstances, but that voice, that raging voice, that has got to be cut off immediately. I do not believe that there's any value in listening to that raging voice. Now, this is, this is not to say that I haven't asked myself again and again, what is it about me that is so susceptible, that so wants to be taken care of by somebody who seems to have the answers that I'm willing to throw what I know away? That's a different voice than, than you idiot. Mm-hmm. You good for nothing. You dumb thing. How could you? Give me a break. I mean, that's a different voice. The actual voice of curiosity, the actual voice of wanting to know, well, what happened there? What really happened? What, what block? What obstacle? What, what, what quality? What tendency of mine is operating that, that allows me to just throw myself overboard like that? Mm-hmm. That's different. Because when that voice is raging, what I've discovered is that there's no way that I can answer that question. I can't really get to the bottom of that because all I feel when that voice is raging is horrible about myself, mm-hmm. is ashamed. I feel collapsed and paralyzed and diminished and like slitting my wrists. Mm-hmm. And in that condition... I, I have never discovered that what's actually going on has the space to reveal itself. Mm-hmm. 
because all I want to do is hide. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in finding out the truth then. I'm just interested in hiding because it's like being whipped. You know, when a kid gets beaten, when, when you're getting whipped, all you want is for the whipping to stop. You don't want to figure out what you're getting whipped about. You just want the pain to stop. So have I asked myself, you know, what it is, what goes on? Have I been incredibly mindful of that since then? Yes. Was I vigilant and have I become extraordinarily vigilant about stopping that voice dead in its tracks when it starts revving itself up? Yes. How do you do that? How do you stop that voice dead in its tracks? Well, that's a really good question, and there are a lot of different ways that a lot of different people believe. I'll tell you what works for me. The first, the first thing that works for me is awareness. I have to realize that that voice is operating. For the first many times that it happened, I'm not talking about Madoff. I'm talking about for the first 100,000 times it happened, while I was trying to be aware of it before Madoff, because I think if I had just started becoming aware of it when Madoff happened, it would have been really hard to stop it. I think this is the kind of thing you have to be aware of pretty much daily. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the first thing that has to happen or had to happen for me is that I had to become aware that the voice was operating. That voice sound sounded so much like my voice and it's and also because it had co-opted the truth that was using something that actually had happened to make me feel awful about what happened that I had to be aware when the voice was revving up. And so I had to begin understanding the difference between my voice or the voice that really wanted to know what was going on and that voice, which, you know, that, that voice is called by, by so many names, the superego, the inner critic, the inner parent, the judge, the, I mean, you know, call it anything, but that's basically what it is. It's the voice that thinks it knows what you're supposed to be doing and how you're supposed to be doing it, and basically it says that you're not doing it the right way. That's what I found. At least that's my version of it. Mm-hmm. So the first thing that happens is is that I'm either aware of it speaking to me or I'm aware that I suddenly feel collapsed. Mm-hmm. I wasn't collapsed five minutes ago or two minutes ago, but I'm suddenly collapsed and ashamed. Mm-hmm. And if I have enough presence, I, I realize, wow. Something just happened there. I was feeling fine, and now I feel collapsed. Now I feel humiliated, and now I feel ashamed. What happened? What am I saying to myself? Mm-hmm. And it, it takes a lot of attention and, and some degree of consciousness to, to realize, okay, I'm, 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 I'm in it. I'm on it. I'm on myself. I'm raging against myself. What I do at that point, um, if being aware of it, simply naming it, isn't enough to help me disengage and to kind of dissolve it, I'll go the next step and I'll, I'll, I will either write down or I'll say out loud if I'm alone, and this took a lot of practice also, I will say what that voice is saying to me. And so that I can actually hear the cruelty in it. It's cruel. I mean, it's just out and out cruel and vicious. So once I hear it, once I hear the way that I'm speaking to myself, mm-hmm. but I'll put it in the you terms, like, you are a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. You are so unbelievably dumb. You are doomed. You are a failure. If I say it in the you form, and this doesn't work for everybody, but for me it does because then there's a you and an I. Then, then, then there's actually somebody. There's a there's a there's a some voice that's talking to me. 
it is a superego voice, then I, I can just feel the cruelty of it. And, um, and then at that point, at least for me, it can stop. At the beginning, when I, when I became aware of what I was saying to myself and how I was saying it, I would also just say, stop, enough, go away. You know, there are some schools of thought that believe that it's really important to, to be vehement with that voice, to be aggressive with that voice, to mobilize some kind of aggression that you were never allowed to have as a kid if you were one of those kids who was never supposed to talk back to your parents. Mm-hmm. So um, one school of thought says you need to mobilize your own aggressiveness simply to separate from the voice as an act of separation mm-hmm. so that you can then see what's true. That has never really, truly worked for me. But becoming aware of the cruelty of it, becoming aware of it and the cruelty of it, and that I'm locked in a death grip with it, and that it won't lead to any good, that helps. But it's a practice. Now, now you mentioned that it's a practice that you've worked with uh, I think you said a hundred thousand times, but let's just well, say I've lots of times over, over the years. Years and years and years. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I was just joking there, Janine. But <laughs> you know, in the, in the context, I presume in uh, probably many contexts, but at least somewhat in the context of emotional eating and with your work with helping people with issues uh, related to emotional eating. So I'm curious how how does that voice play in people's relationship with food? Ah. Uh. It's primary. It, the moment somebody starts eating what they think they shouldn't be eating, the moment somebody starts binging, uh, the moment somebody starts feeling like uh, their pants are too small, like they've gained weight, um, I, I mean, it, it, it comes in constantly, many, many times a day. In comes that voice, how could you, why did you, what's the matter with you, aren't you ever going to, Um, you're hopeless, you're a failure, why don't you just give give up, there's no way out, you should have known this, Uh, you know, and then of course what happens is that people hear it, they talk to themselves like that, and usually their response is to go eat some more because they feel so bad that they then use food to comfort themselves. So, again, it's a voice that needs to be recognized and it needs to be stopped. And, and, and by stopped, I mean disengaged from, named and disengaged from. And, and really, I think it takes having support to do this. I'm a great believer in not doing this alone. I think it takes help. I think it takes guidance. I think it takes support. Because what I find in my students, um, for the first many times that we work with this, and what I certainly saw in myself for years, is that I was so identified with this voice that I couldn't tell the difference between me and it. And I also felt like I deserved it. Mm-hmm. I deserve to be spoken to like that. I had gained 30 pounds. My thighs really were so big. I was a bad person. It was telling me what I needed to know. It was keeping me from making even more mistakes. So there was a 100% belief in what this voice was saying. And so to disengage from it... You have to be able to tell the difference between, okay, right, maybe I did gain 20 pounds, but that doesn't make me unredeemable. It doesn't make me a failure. It doesn't make me doomed. And the same was true with losing our money. Yep, yep, I really did make sort of the same mistake twice. Sort of. Not exactly. Sort of. The same mistake twice. Okay, so so what? So what? What did that make me? Did that make me an abject failure forever? Did that make me incredibly dumb? Well, it certainly made me naive. 
and it certainly really spoke that I was somebody who hadn't quite learned the first time around what there was for me to learn. But but so what? It's not like we're being graded here. It's not like anybody's keeping score. It's not like we're going to get to the end of our lives and pass a test or fail a test. So it's, so what? What is there for me to see here? You know, if you, if you separate being good from what's happened, if you separate passing some test you have in your mind, I'm supposed to be, you know, learning this as quickly as I can so I can get to the end as, as fast as possible. If you take that away, then there's just what's happening and whatever it is you choose to do with it. You know, I was looking on your website last night and looking at the description of one of your upcoming retreats, and there was a bullet point describing some of the things that will be covered, and one of the bullet points said, discovering that no situation or feeling is unworkable. And I thought that was really incredible. In a way, it, it speaks to what you're saying, that no situation or feel. I mean, that's a very huge thing to know, that no situation or feeling will be unworkable that could happen. It is huge, and, and in some ways it goes back to what you asked me about protection. Yeah. Um, I think I've carried for the longest time this sense that there, that there was something that was going to be completely unworkable that would destroy me. And I'm not talking about death. I'm talking about a situation. I'm talking about a feeling. I'm talking about a loss or something happening. That something could happen while I was still alive that would utterly destroy me. And that was not, in fact, workable. And I think what I was in part using my money for and in part eating for during the years that I was compulsive about food was to keep myself buffered, to protect myself from that devastation, from, from seeing, from feeling, from ever getting to that place where I would be torn apart and devastated. And what the Madoff loss has given to me, in some way, most of all, was that one of the worst things that happened, happened. It's not the worst thing. And I, and I qualify this a lot because I can think of so many worst things, like being raped, like watching my family get murdered, like being a murderer, like being in the middle of a war zone. I, I, I can think of a hundred things worse, but in my limited and very privileged life, losing all of that money was one of the top few worst things that could happen. And it happened. And I wasn't devastated. I wasn't torn apart. I felt lost for a while and I felt in shock and I, I cried, but I wasn't devastated. And, and that was amazing to me. That really was amazing. In fact, what happened was that as I allowed myself to cry and to feel like a bomb had been thrown into my chest and to feel the loss, um, I started feeling what was left and I what, what was still left, as I said, and I started seeing what I wanted to say about it, that, that um, I wanted to write about it. And so I wrote that I hadn't written really about anything but food literally for 30 years. Mm-hmm. And 
I decided to write about that because there were so many articles coming out about how I got screwed by Madoff and um, how my life is completely horrible because of what Madoff did. And I actually felt like there was that, but there was also something else to be said, to be found, that there, there, that there was something that was there after the loss that I wanted to pay attention to and that I wanted people to pay attention to. And so I, I wrote that piece that you saw, and then that piece led to amazing responses from people, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of responses. And that led me to see that, oh, I wanted to write more about that. It kind of opened the door mm-hmm. to a whole new area that I wanted to look at, write about, pay attention to, and that I never would have done mm-hmm. without the Madoff loss. So it changed my life radically in many ways, and many of them have been ways that I've been grateful for. I think, but as I said, the most is to see that one of the worst things that could happen, and I still was not going to be destroyed. That everything that I had been doing these these spiritual practices for, for all of these years, you know, since I went to India when I was 23, all of that, all that everyone said on the essential level, I'm not talking about all the 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 notions of heaven realms and hell realms sure. and all of that, but that the bottom line of that there is something that can never be destroyed was actually true. And I was living it day by day because I still got up. I still moved. Um, I still I still did the things that I did before I lost the money. And there was a sense when I started paying attention to it, I mean, when I when I stopped crying long enough, uh, of the benevolence that was left, of the sheer goodness of being alive, and I was struck with that, and and so that led me to a different kind of practice in my life of starting to actually consciously pay attention to what is here instead of what isn't here. You know, Janine, this series of conversations is called Insights at the Edge, and I think uh, this conversation couldn't fit that any better in terms of this really being such an alive edge in your life and you having so many insights about this very current and you know experience for you so i thank you so much yeah i'm i'm really happy to talk about it and i'm i'm very very glad that you asked me tammy and i wonder and this is just um uh, just for my own enjoyment if you would be willing to recite the poem again the kindness poem which i think is so beautiful i would love to recite that poem yes and and this is Kind of as an aside, I um, that poem was one of the things that got me through those weeks. That as I went to bed with it and woke up with it in the middle of the night, because I knew that um, Naomi Shihab Nye, in order to write that poem, had already traversed the the territory that I was moving through. There was comfort in that, and there was, uh, there was, was, I don't even know what to call it, Uh, reassurance isn't strong enough, and comfort actually isn't strong enough. I knew that there was another side to this, and I knew that if I stayed with the loss itself and the feelings that the loss was bringing up, it would wash me up on the shore that she was talking about. 
so I, I held fast to that poem. Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. Thank you, Janine. This program has been brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Please visit us at SoundsTrue.com and experience our award-winning audio programs for yourself. Programs that embrace the world's major spiritual traditions, as well as the arts and humanities, embodied by the leading authors, teachers, and visionary artists of our time. With every title, we strive to preserve the essential living wisdom of the author, artist, or spiritual teacher. Not only will you receive information, but you will receive the essential quality of a wisdom transmission between a teacher and a student. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com